Hello and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my long-suffering co-host, or suffering for probably a year or so, co-host Teos Avidea. Hey, Teos. Uh, it, it is always a pleasure. Uh, it's always a pleasure to, to suffer here. with me. It, I, let's suffer together. Let's All do it right. as we can. We will. We are going to suffer not uh, this week, because we have not recorded since D&D Direct dropped a boatload of news upon us. So we are going to spend most of this episode talking about the news that came at D&D Direct and what we think of it. But first, we had a couple of questions that came in on the main website, uh, uh, misdirectedmark.com. So I wanted to address them. Uh, one addresses an episode that we did long, long ago uh, when Chris Nizak was co-hosting and then another one more recent. So uh, let's get to those first. Cool. Uh, so this first one is uh, from listener Eric Commander, who uh, came to us via Sly Flourish. So thank you, Mike, for uh, for helping boost the signal here. And thank you, Eric, for coming over to take a listen. Uh, we did a show two years ago now, probably, taking other Q&A from listeners. And one of the questions that Chris and I got was about removing things from the game and why it's not necessarily a great idea. And I went back and I listened to that section of the show. And so Eric asked, uh, he just listened to that episode and he wondered if we still felt the same way about removing things from the game as opposed to adding them. Uh, quite a few years ago, I concluded that D&D is trying to be everything for everyone, which is great, but it makes more and more reasonable, almost expected, that DMs will pick and choose what they include in specific campaigns. In my mind, this constitutes, quote, removing things from the game, but you may look at it differently. Uh, personally, I prefer to run a more minimalist game where PCs uh, can only include the core creatures from the player's handbook, and civilizations are typically unfriendly or generally hostile to unknown foreign creature types. Uh, so, you know, by default, I don't include classes or spells from every official book either. Would you consider this removing things from the game? And so I want to make clear that when we talked about removing things from the game like, two years ago, that question was more about removing core rules from the game as opposed to removing supplemental material. So when we said you must be wary about removing things from the game, we're talking about like removing the initiative system. We're talking about removing, you know, magic systems, things that the game is actually built upon, which is still fine to do. You just have to be very careful and think through the ramifications of, of what you're doing. In terms of removing things like supplemental material from the game, I think that's totally fine. Uh, I think you as the game master or as the player must get together with your group and decide what makes sense for the types of adventures and the setting that you're playing in. If you only want humans in your world and everyone's on board with that, remove all the other races. That's fine. Uh, do you want humans to be evil monsters that are subjugating every other sentient race? And that's how you choose to play. And so you remove humans uh, as player characters and make them the bad guys. Totally cool. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't do that as the designer of a world that other people are going to be playing in for the reasons that were actually stated in the question, because D&D does try to be everything to everyone in some ways. So, yeah, when we talk about not removing things from the game in that sense, we're talking about the core rules, not uh, supplemental material. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I remember listening to this episode ages ago. Uh, I was really young back then. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, one thing that occurs to me is that this is something that used to happen a whole lot because the game, like if you go back to like basic AD&D, the, the game had a lot of things that were truly core, but also kind of optional. Or even you couldn't quite understand what the full intent was. And they didn't necessarily tie into everything else. And so you could easily remove a thing. Like, I mean, initiative even. You could do initiative different ways. And you would find people doing initiative very different different, different ways. And it sort of didn't matter. Because the rest of the game hadn't been built to intersect with it. Yeah. But now, design is so tightly woven that there is a deliberate decision. You know, it's not what one person came up with on a Sunday. It, the initiative system is taking all kinds of things into account. The action economy, how monsters are designed, you, know, you name it. And so at, at this point in the game, if you separate something core out, right. it generally is going to be very difficult. It, it's going to have impacts and ramifications you may not understand unless you are an actual designer and, and have seen these kinds of systems. Yeah, for example, uh, powers or abilities that last until the start of your next turn or the end of your next turn were not in AD&D. They are in 5th edition. So if you run an initiative system where you might act last in one round and first in the next round, and you do something that lasts until the start of your next turn, you know that's nerfing that particular thing because your initiative system is forcing someone to take two turns in a row. Yeah. Whereas taking two turns in a row for someone else might be the greatest thing ever because you can set up a totally uh, you know, overpowered move by doing that. So uh, yeah. that's why the initiative system is important to sort of keep as is. But I do really like that idea that, you know, Eric is talking about of where you say, I'm running a campaign that's going to be this kind of campaign. Therefore, mm -hmm. you know, here's the, your menu of options. One thing is I think that it it, uh, it kind of helps the players focus because they know, okay, you know, I am in this kind of a campaign, so I should make a character that fits. And, and, and my options are now smaller, which is almost better. You don't get overloaded by all those options. Um, and so that's very helpful versus having everything there. And it'll help the team be more cohesive. The characters will be more similar, more aligned with the setting. All of that is, is good reason to do that when yeah. it comes to that supplemental stuff. Yeah. And if you do have a player that wants to play something outside of what the setting would consider normal, it's still okay to do that. They just, the player just has to understand that there may be consequences to that. And as the DM, you need to be very specific about what those consequences are. You don't want to say, well, you can do that, but you may be treated differently when you enter civilized areas. And then when the first time they enter a civilized area, they are lit up with 10,000 arrows. And you're like, well, I said there was consequences. And you know that's that's not the sort of consequences that, that you want to go into your game. You want to yeah. have have players understand what those consequences are, be be reasonable and be explicit with them, and then get the buy-in so the yeah. player will know. It's, it's great session zero stuff. Yep, absolutely. So from another listener, Robert, uh, had this question. I recognize I'm late to the party, but I wanted to comment on the Doctor Who 5e discussion. Vitriol aside, I can certainly understand a fan base being upset with a small publisher splitting resources away from a system they've been supporting to a different system under the same LP. The LP being, you know, the, the license. License property. Yep. 
So players that might uh, have come and supported the original game system will now stop at the 5e version of the LP. Uh, the publisher follows the growth and commits its resources to the 5e system, eventually abandoning the first adopters. So that would be worrisome to the players. And sure, that's totally... You have the right to feel any way you want to feel. Uh, publishers also have a, especially mid to large size publishers, also have a uh, an obligation to their employees, to your right to their business side, to run their business the best way they can. And so, I don't begrudge people who are upset when something like that happens and resources are used to support a different game system for the Doctor Who game. Uh, yeah, but I'm not going to go online and c- call the company out because as a fan, I don't owe them anything and they don't owe me anything other than the money that I pay them to get the product that they're promising me. So your books are still useful. Um, your you know, they, they cannot come to your house and take away the books that you've already purchased. So you may have to do your own work to create more uh, content for the game, that, that game system that you want, uh, but it's there. And yeah. you just, you are now a consumer and you can choose to continue to support them or walk away and you know, do, do something else. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious to see if, if there was a, a kind of, you know, some sleuthing done whether we would find that it's true that companies end up sort of splitting their support. I'm sure it happens sometimes, but I don't know that that's the typical thing that happens. Um, you know, like I think of like Monty Cook games, right? They've offered 5e in addition to Cypher system mm-hmm. uh, in, in many of their recent right. uh, endeavors. And I think that probably what it does is contribute to overall growth. It doesn't seem like they're making fewer Cypher products. Right. They're just also making 5e products. So it doesn't have to be a negative. Um, and it's important to think with something like Doctor Who RPG, you know, things like that, the fan base for that is small. Like it, mm-hmm. it really is. Not not just compared to D&D, but, but compared to right. even, you know, large non-D&D RPGs. Yeah. Those, these licensed RPGs sadly tend to be very small and, mm-hmm. and they tend to not grow over time. Right. unless magic happens. Mm-hmm. And so if anything, this probably revitalizes the line and brings in more people who will check out those other resources. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a negative. I, I like, like Sean, I understand the feeling of, you know, oh, this is terrible. You know, I wanted to play in, in the system that I started with. I get that. Yeah. Um, but I think in general, it's positive. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would rather have the conversation of, are they now going to stop supporting the game I love? And is 5e really a good system for a Doctor Who story? Uh, a class-based, <laughs> sure. you know, pass-fail system without any degrees of, uh, you know, degrees of success or any yeah. way to assure success at a cost like you can with fate, uh, right? Is that, is that a good system? Now I'll have that discussion all day long, um, <laughs> sure. but still it's just, it's just opinion. Uh, yeah. and it doesn't have and, anything to do with resources. And, and the reality is that a lot of times, you know, what's the greater good. I mean, there are probably a lot of people out there who are like, I do not want to learn another RPG, right. but boy, would I love to play property X in five E mm-hmm. and 
And so you're going to have both sides of the coin in terms of how right. fans respond. And business-wise, it might have gotten to the point where uh, who does the Doctor Who game? Oh, boy. Um, yeah. It, it, I I could turn around and look on my shelf, but I, I'm too lazy to actually. Cubicle 7. Cubicle 7, thank you. It could be, I'm not saying this is true, but just hypothetically, it could have gotten to the point where Cubicle 7 could not afford to create a new Doctor Who book. So they have to create a 5e version to hopefully make the money to create the next 5e book or the, the next Doctor Who book in any system. So, yeah, yeah it's, you know, yeah, it's, and, and, it's all you know, you don't, you don't owe the company anything mm-hmm. other than consuming and being a civil human being. But, um, you know, the one thing you can do to help your RPG of choice grow is to run games in public, right? Mm-hmm. And spread the word. Yeah. And so that's all we can do as fans, right? When when I love a game like, you know, Gumshoe System, like like Knights Black Agents, I, I run it in public, yep. right? If I like the Aliens RPG, I run it in public at conventions and I promote it and I talk about it. That's the only thing we can do as fans truly is to try to get more customers there. You know, if you think the AGE system is great, you, you point people to it yep. because it is. It's a great, really nice, simple system. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah. And that's all we can do. Yeah, I I love Doctor Who as as a property and as a story, and so I went to a game day there where someone was doing just that. They were running the the game for new players. Had an absolute blast. The DM was amazing. The game master was amazing. The other players hilarious. We laughed and had fun for four hours. Did not like the system one bit. So you know, instead of so I did the thing. Now then I came home and I ran it. Uh, as a fate accelerated game uh, because that's how the system I felt was better for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, I mean, there, there are other ways to support the companies, but you do not, as Teo said, owe them anything. Once you pay the money for their product, uh, you, they don't know you, you don't know them. And hopefully, yeah. you know, you like to have good relationships, but it's not always possible. In the uh, 1990s, I converted Shadowrun to AD&D. Mm-hmm. Uh, which tells you where my brain was. Uh, I will also say that what I created was horrible. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, mean, I, cr- I combined Top Secret and, and AD&D back in the day, uh-huh. and it was hella fun. It was game mechanically-wise, it was terrible, but, yeah, we, we were well, young. We had fun. I don't want to be too direct about this, but we should probably talk about our next topic. I know we should, which is D&D Direct. I get to what you just did there. Uh, so let's go through everything that was announced and what we think of it. We're going to start with the big news, which is we can finally say once and for all, do it, Teos. Spelljammer confirmed. Spelljammer actually confirmed. Spelljammer Adventures in Space, which is the same name as the 1989 uh, set, is being released. Tell us what Spelljammer is, because I never played it back in the day. I had sort of gone away from D&D a bit at that time so yeah yeah. so Spelljammer is this absolutely you know bonkers idea where your characters can get onto a ship and that ship can look like a galleon with normal sails you know that looks like it belongs on the water or it could look like a really fantastic thing sort of like a dragonfly with you know strange wings that are iridescent colors and uh or a nautiloid ship that looks like it's got tentacles in the front of it but you get onto the ship and it's powered by a magical helm and you through the power of this helm 
And with your crew manning sails and stuff like that, you fly off into space. And you can go from one planet to another and from one solar system to another. Those aren't the exact words we use for various reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but you can go, you know, you could be in Crin space and you could go to Gray space and you could go to the Toral and you could, you know, just go all over the place. And there was the legend of the actual Spelljammer itself, a big manta ray looking city Spelljammer thing. And and the, the, the line was enormous. This, this uh, you know, late 90s, late 89, early 90s uh, campaign had, I, I showcased it on Twitter, but I don't remember the count, but it's an absolute metric ton of content that it had. It had three box sets. It had uh, two, you know, large supplements. It had many adventures. It had six novels. It had a video game. It had, you know, you name it, all sorts of stuff. So it was a huge thing back then, which still a lot of people saw as being completely absurd and terrible. Uh, and other people thought it was great. And my personal experience was I thought it was really stupid. And then my players, as they did with many settings, bought it for me and said, you're running this. And I ran it and discovered that I could basically have Star Trek, where every week that we'd play, I could take them to any world I might imagine and create any scenario I wanted. And I could pull from any book on my vast shelf. And I could create Swamp World or Ice World or Fire World or whatever and create any crazy story just as you would in a Star Trek type thing. And I ended up loving it. Uh, the other thing is you could have these massive ship-to-ship -ship battles that were just super cool. So the, the rules were probably terrible, you know, from today's lens. But back then, it was so much fun to shoot catapults and board the other ship. And, yeah, it was great. Awesome. So this is being released as a set a set of three books that also include a two-sided poster map of the Rock of Brawl asteroid base with art by Marco Bernardini and a DM screen. Yeah, love Marco's work. Um, and all this comes in a slipcase. Now, there is no plan to sell the books individually, and we'll get into what those books are. Right now on Amazon, uh, in U.S. dollars, it is being priced at $69.99, so $70. Uh, we'll come back to why this is interesting later when we talk about what's actually in the set. Mm -hmm. uh, it releases on August 16th. There's also an alternative cover uh, set. And pre-ordering is already live on places like World 20, D&D Beyond, your local gaming store, etc. So what is in each of these three books? Well, first of all, they're 64 pages each. Uh, so And hardback. And hardback, right. So there's 64 page hardbacks, but there are three of them. So if you put all that content together, you're looking at, you know, about a 200 page book with all the content. Um, so what are the books? I will let Teos talk about the first one. So the first is the Astral Adventurer's Guide. And that word astral is interesting. Um, we get six new playable races for players featuring the Astral Elves, Auto Gnomes. Uh, I used to listen to that band in, yeah. in uh, college. Yep. Uh, the Hadozi, which are flying primates. Uh, there's a joke there. The Gif, hippo-headed humanoids. Uh, they love explosions and smoke powder and actual gunpowder. Uh, plasmoids, which are ooze humanoids, the first playable ooze uh, in this version of D&D. And the Thrycreen, which are psionic insects. Um so that's fun because it kind of taps into Dark Sun a little bit. Yep. Um, the book also contains your DM information on Wild Space, which is that area between the planets. 
um, everything you need to know to run a Spelljammer campaign. It does not describe the other worlds or systems in detail, so it doesn't go into what Crin space is or you know and what all the moons are and whatnot. But it does talk about how to travel between the various worlds that D&D covers. Um, gives you a few wild space systems to be a framework so dungeon masters can build their own. And then you get spells and magic items, things like your Spelljammer helm that you have to attune to um, with revised rules for that that are better than the old ones. Then second book is the Booze Astral Menagerie, named after the miniature giant space hamster. Uh, over 60 new monster types, including space clowns vampires, murder comets, and solar and lunar dragons. And that tells you a little bit about the setting yeah. as well. And it's probably worth saying this, Sean, that you know, when you asked what is Spelljammer, Spelljammer was often this really bizarre intersection of things where one moment it would be real space swashbuckling, you know, pulpy kind of feel, pirates in space kind of thing. And then other times it really would be things like space clowns and gnomes with a hamster wheel driving their ship. And and that would upset people, as you might expect, because yeah. it really felt bizarre. Silly. But it also meant that you could, at any point, almost create any sort of campaign and cross over those elements in campaigns, which actually, you know, shows like Star Trek often did, right? They'd have yeah. those sort of really absurd things. Right. And it, this was a time, originally, this was a time when there were these many worlds. So putting something into play that would combine them was uh, behooved TSR to to give people reasons to access other worlds yeah. within their same single campaigns. Yeah, it was also the time of the monsters compendium when you were supposed to sort of take all these different worlds monsters and sort of mix them into your binder and things like that. Sure. Um, Perkins said that 1990s Spelljammer came out when Star Trek: Next Generation was on TV. Perkins was a big fan of that show, and he wanted this book to support that sort of episodic fun. Uh, with locations and creatures to keep it interested. And he said that he uh, someday wants to do a future adventure with giant space hamsters. And the, he was asked why, and he said, giant space hamsters tell you something about D&D because no matter how serious a situation is, it also has giant space hamsters. Yeah. D&D is an escape, and this is the best escape. Yeah, it's true. And it, it really goes to show you know, that D&D tries to be everything to everyone. And so you do have to, if you want to keep silly things out of your campaign, need to say that ahead of time. Otherwise, silliness will creep in, whether it's from the players or from the setting itself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So the third book, third hardcover, is an adventure called Light of Xerixis. It is an adventure for levels five to eight, featuring 12 episodes, each of which ends in a cliffhanger. It has several hooks to get the players started. And here's the quote. Light of Xerxes is a journey through wild space and the astral sea. Among other locations showcased in the adventure are two new wild space locations, as well as the fan favorite Rock of Brawl, which is a campaign hub in space where players can shop, carouse, and gather information. So everything that you need, right? The player stuff, the DM stuff, the monsters, and the adventure are all in this nice little boxed slipcase. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, in a lot of ways, while... It, it, so one thing is, this is something that, that uh, we'd heard that D&D would experiment with formats. And so mm -hmm. we get this sort of slipcase format, which maybe has the sort of emotional feel of a box set, but is maybe easier to make and, and you know, easier to price, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, 
splitting the books this way makes it easier to sort of fit different topics in that maybe otherwise you might not want to do for strategic reasons because it can upset the feel of a book. Mm-hmm. So this may help with that. Um, but it, it is really interesting. And, and yeah, I don't know. Do you want to talk about the price point now? Well, I, I, all I was going to say is it, it when they announced that it would be three hardcover books, you know, my first thought was, okay, what, 40, 50 bucks a book, that's $150. And then they said each book was only 74 pages. I was like, well, wait a second, are they going to try to charge 40 or $50 for a 74 page book? And then, uh-huh. then when, the, when I saw the price and it was all bundled together, I'm like, okay, it's a little more expensive than a book would be, but it actually, it's actually nice to be able to hand your players one book yeah. as the DM and bring the other two over to you that have the monsters in the adventure. Uh, so you're not having to buy extra copies of the book. So I'm 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 fine with it uh, the way it is. Yeah, yeah. And um, an immediate question that came up was, DMs Guild, can I start building for this? And Wizards said, um, more information to come. Mm-hmm. For sure, do not publish anything yet. Because yep. Spelljammer is not a world that you can, a campaign that you can write for on the DMs Guild or elsewhere, of course. Yep. Um, so prior to August, you know, it's still closed. Right. Hold on to your great ideas. You might even start working on them because probably it will be open, but it's right. it's not open yet. Although um, we did hear something about the Adventurers League, which yeah. we will mention in a minute, that will give you hearts that maybe sooner rather than later you'll be able to put stuff up on the DMs Guild. Uh, what what does the slipcase format uh, allow that a regular book wouldn't? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, it. It, it, we've seen that you know companies like Beetle and Grimm's have split up books mm-hmm. and split up or split up really adventures so that you had say like a chapter at a time. Um, it does make it easier to sort of access the thing you're running, the thing you're working with, and I could see how it also facilitates, like you were saying, like you're, you hand the rules on managing a ship to somebody, but you know they're not going to see anything from the adventure in it, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. you avoid spoilers. Um, I'll be curious to see. So they said at, in, in, in an interview, because um, there was a press day, a press event that followed the announcements. And at that press event, they asked about this package. Uh, media people asked about this packaging. And the answer was, well, we'll see how well it's received. That'll let us know whether we're going to do it again. Yeah. Um, Perkins would not address any future Spelljammer releases after this set or the other things that we're going to talk about here. So there's no current plans to provide more. And and I would be surprised if there really was more. It would have to be hugely popular, I think, for Wizards to want to dedicate more to this. Yeah. Another thing that it does with like with a box set, since you can seal up the the case, you can put in digital codes Mm -hmm. that you can't just put in a book that someone can open. Um, so that might be another notch toward the side of doing something like subcases in the future. If now that you have D&D Beyond, you're going to give discounts for the digital material or, or so on. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I think that's a, a business question of to how, how much do, do you care whether you're... Do you feel your customer must own both paper and digital? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to facilitate right. the difference? You know, like, yeah. then, then that might... Yeah, so I don't know. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. And you're right. You could slip something in easily the way they're doing a DM screen mm-hmm. and a um, 
uh, map, you know, they can do character sheets and they can do any number of things, advertising and stuff like that, that you can't easily put into a book except as like the last page. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it's, how it's, uh, how it sells and then what comes forward from that. Um, what was the news on digital releases for Spelljammer specifically? So this was fascinating. You know, I thought that D&D, when, when you and I and Mike Shea talked about, you know, what will D&D Direct, Direct possibly bring, one of the things I thought is D&D Direct might be the name of a new platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was thinking they were going to make a bigger announcement that would talk about digital through D&D Direct. Um, they did not do that, but they did have digital releases. They just didn't attach D and D direct as a branding. Maybe it's solely a, a, you know, sort of advertising event. Um, but for Spelljammer, we immediately have available the first of two digital releases to get them. You have to set up a digital account on the D and D website, which if you've been doing sort of organized play or you downloaded all the free materials, you probably already have mm-hmm. a, a wizards of the coast website login. Once you log in, you can download for free Monstrous Compendium Spelljammer Creatures, which has 10 monsters, which apparently are not used in the adventure at all. So these are just um, extra Spelljammer Creatures. And one of them is, in fact, from Dark Sun, the Nightmare Beast. <laughs> the rest, and some of them are new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also Spelljammer Academy, which is a preview PDF adventure that's going to be released in July. Um, Chris Perkins called it a friendly introduction to the concept of Spelljamming that explains what the setting is and how to run a Spelljammer campaign. Um, the Spelljammer Academy has low level adventures that can take players from levels one to five. And then right after that, they can go into the light of Xerixis, which starts at level five. Uh, so this is interesting in a number of ways. Um, for me, I, I love this idea of, of a preview adventure. Um, you know, having written several of them, I, I think it's a great introduction uh, and giving it away for free even. Um, I think it's free, right? Yeah. 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 It's going to be free. And so, you know, it, it, it's a great, uh, what I call a loss leader. It's a great yeah. uh, way to advertise and provide uh, extra content. And it's something that I wish they w- would have done in conjunction with the organized play more in the past. Because they have all the organized play content that has been created that just sat there in its own silo for so long when it could have been pulled out and used as introductions without the need to create a whole new uh, introduct- introductory adventure. So, well, and, and along those lines, though, you know what's interesting is so this uh, I presume is being written, you know, by a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fairly meaty in that going from first to fifth is you right. know that's a good start of a campaign there you know that can take people depending on how quickly it runs i mean it could be a fair amount of play you know this if this were an al mini season mm-hmm. which it could have been right you could have had a number of of writers creating say five four-hour adventures right and those could be both adventures league uh content and then be this and, and so it's interesting that this is packaged not as, say, organized play, welcome to organized play, and then you'll go into the official one, which you can also play through organized play. It is sort of more of this free yeah. Wizards of the Coast official product, which you also will be able to play yeah. <laughs> in organized play, right? Yeah. And, and, and there's even times we would have seen, like, say, in 4th edition and early 5th, certainly D&D Next, 
these kinds of things were run at game days right. where the emphasis was the gaming store and bringing community together now easily because of the pandemic that could have been the motivation for changing this right. but making this part of this digital release yeah you know it, it it's interesting it, it is a yeah. shift but it could be a shift for a lot of different reasons right and it's hard to peg at this point but i still think these two things being strong digital releases show a po a, a probable path forward where you would get they want you to get digital content from them yeah. to supplement things and and it's it's funny now that i think about it i go back and look at that uh light of xerixis adventure we we've already know it's what 68 pages 64 64 pages and it's 12 episodes so i'm no math wizard but we're looking at just over five pages per episode if we divide it up so those episodes are very short um perhaps assuming there's a lot of art in there um you're not talking about a great deal of content per episode probably which is it's not necessarily good it's not necessarily bad it just sort of is something yeah, though, to think you know about. i mean like if i think about say the um i'm, I'm holding dragon of ice aspire speak peak in yeah. spanish <laughs> and if i look at it you know it, it's like one you know that's like five pages basically yeah. for an episode so it's sort of like that it's sort of that that kind of length which which is different than say like tomb of annihilation and you know like right. a big section right that which big honking piece to get yeah. you through certain levels. Um, yeah, these are faster experiences. Yeah. But, but they but, might still be two-hour experiences. Or sure. Like and, and it does go along with the episodic feel where if you don't have to connect all of these episodes really tightly, I mean, you can have them continue a story but not be so integrated that you have to spend pages explaining the connection between all the episodes. You can, you yeah. can make those sort of shorter episodes uh, that give the game master the ability or the necessity to uh, do some work on their own to to make it work as a campaign. Yeah, and a, and a fun thing that Spelljammer did is they would um, a number of the products there were sort of like fill in the blanks uh, products that would be like here's something you can find as you're going from point A to point B. Run this little mini encounter, yeah. or like there was Under the Dark Fist was this big campaign that the first few things were meant to introduce these like werewolf-like creatures that were coming in and going to threaten all of the worlds. And so you would run a, a just a little teaser sort of thing that seemed like just, oh, some random creatures my DM put together. But it was actually deliberate that you were seeding the right. campaign to come. So it may be that this is that kind of thing where they're giving you some meat and they're saying, but add to this, right? Because you should be mm -hmm. traveling. And so maybe it ends in a cliffhanger. Hey, what does that lead to? Now right. the DM can run some other stuff, have some fun. Yeah. And then the next land, the next episode. We'll see. Sure. Uh, were there any changes to the setting that you noticed uh, based yeah. on your knowledge of what came before? <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I mean, the first thing I'd say is none of them were, were you know, any deal breaker, right? It's it's not like Dark Sun is now set in a jungle world, right? There was none of that kind of, you know, what, what are you thinking? Um, spell jamming helms were confirmed to have been changed. Uh, that's no surprise. The way it used to work is, is you had to have a spellcaster sit there, and when they did, all of their spell slots were drained. Okay. And so if you had, like, hey, let's fly from A to B, oh, halfway through we have this battle, your wizard or your cleric who sat on the helm had no spells with which to contribute, 
which was really lame. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not like your ship came with a bunch of powers that the helm activated. No, you're just, right. you are useless uh, and have no hit points um, if you're a wizard. So now it's more like a tuning and you don't lose your spells. And we've seen this in some of the teasers of other, you know, where they've talked about helm-like things in various 5e products. We could right. see that coming. Um, Spelljammer used to connect the worlds via rivers in what was called the phlogiston. And this is sort of tied into old mythology and concepts of how the worlds might work, our, our actual real worlds. Um, and it was sort of a fun romantic notion of uh, you picture each solar system as sort of a bubble, a sh crystal shell that floats in this flammable liquid called phlogiston, which at one point was the explanation of how things combust. Uh, and you could go through those areas and don't light a fire because it turned into a certain size fireball, depending ah. on how much fire you brought in. Um, and so now what they're saying is probably the crystal shells themselves are actually gone, but also the phlogiston is gone. And the way it works is that you go through wild space from, say, one planet to an asteroid to another planet. But if you go far enough, you actually transition slowly to the astral sea. Mm -hmm. This actually kind of works well with what we've seen in... in a lot of 3E and, and 4E material where clearly like the Githyanki are flying what are their astral skiffs or whatever, but they're right. spell jammers, they're right? Spell jammers, and you were kind of yeah. like, well, why, why do they have spell jammers? And now it actually ties together. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so what about these crystal spheres? Yeah, so there used to be the idea that sort of depending on the solar system, you could go out and eventually hit the shell. And it might be that the stars were painted on there and glowed, or they might be like fiery objects or whatever, but you would reach a physical piece and then you could open a, a sort of portal. Or there might be a portal that led into the phlogiston. And now it was this sort okay. of river you had to learn how to navigate to get to the other crystal shells. Gotcha. So that is all gone. And instead it'll just be fly long enough and you're in the astral. All right. That, that's cool. Uh, interesting. Well, they also announced that there's going to be a, a stream show using Spelljammer called Legends of the Multiverse. Yeah, it even started. Yeah, it's it started already. That's right, on the 27th of April. Um, so you can see that on Twitch and YouTube. It's Wednesday, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific. I almost said specific. Uh, <laughs> and uh, anything else that you wanted to know about the Spelljammer announcement itself? Oh, on, there's uh, a lot of fun stuff you can check out. Like there's a 1990s Wild Space trailer, which for a while there was going to be a board game that apparently they fully made but never released because I guess it was that good. Uh, <laughs> but there is an absolutely absurd YouTube video from the 1990s Wild Space trailer that if you want to know what Spelljammer isn't or, or just want to laugh at Spelljammer, that's where you should look. Um, Jeff Grubb, who was the original designer, key, lead designer of Spelljammer, uh, he uh, has a wonderful blog post on his uh, website, grubstreet with two bs.blogspot.com. Link is in the show notes. And that tells you a lot about how they put these uh, you know, bizarre ideas together back in the day. Nice. So, yeah. And not long after that announcement, the Adventures League, uh, Chris Tulak, Put out a blog post on Yawning Portal saying that the Adventures League will be supporting Spelljammer for organized play, including at their monthly virtual weekends. So the Light of Xerixis will be adapted for the Forgotten Realms Adventures League play. So it's not going to be, it sounds like it's not going to be its own separate campaign. You're going to be right. able to bring your Forgotten Realms characters into this adventure. And then for the Spelljammer Academy release, 
those short adventures that will be available in July uh, will be completely compatible with D&D Adventures League Play. A lot yeah, of and that they were start... designed that way, which is yeah. kind of cool. So yeah. it's part of the Wizards of the Coast thinking. Right. And they said, if you, uh, since it'll be before the materials, the, the final materials come out, you can use the rules that you'll have there um, to use, you'll be able to use sort of like play GIF or mm -hmm. the other creatures. And if for some reason those versions are different than the final ones, then when the final ones are published, you just change to those. Yep. Uh, and that's good. Not surprising, but it's it's good that they were thinking ahead because sometimes organized play sort of gets told what to do long after <laughs> all of the important decisions have been made. Yeah. But what was rev revelatory to me was while they said we don't know whether it will be legal to put stuff on the DMs Guild, they announced that there will be a dungeon craft support for Spelljammer using a program similar to the one that they use for Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which means that you will be able to put Spelljammer okay. content up on the DMs Guild, assuming that they follow through with this. Now, it will ha would have to be put up as Adventures League content, but right. if you are you know wanting to create Spelljammer content, then this is at least a first step for you in that direction. Yeah, I think Dungeon Craft does have some sort of format requirements, and it and it's around an adventure, so you wouldn't be able to say create, um, you know, my Spelljammer Beholder. Yeah, you know, fourteen Spelljammer Beholders is not what Dungeon Craft's about. Right. Um, but it does suggest that we'll see things for the DMs Guild at the very least adventures through Dungeon Craft. Right. So. The Adventures League Dreams of the Red Wizard AL campaign will also have a story arc in the fall that takes you into space and likely uses some Spelljammer content. That, I found that a little bit surprising in that sometimes with something like Spelljammer, you'd think that they want to give you ways to avoid this mm -hmm. if you don't like it. Because mm -hmm. there are some people out there who really don't like Spelljammer, and that's right. fine. Um but there will still be other campaigns, obviously. But it's interesting that there is... A, I think maybe what they're thinking is if you already have an invested high-level character and maybe you want to have that sort of Spelljammer spell, spell feeling, then this short arc could let you do that, which is kind of fun. Yeah, well, maybe uh, the reason why is because Dragonlance was also announced. <laughs> I, I skipped over the minis. We'll come back to the minis. Oh. Uh, yeah. But uh, it could be that Adventures League will also be going into Dragonlance. Now, go ahead and tell us about the Spelljammer minis. All right. Well, really, the biggest news, if there's one thing you were waiting to hear, uh, it is now going to be shared here. Get ready. There are flumps in space, people. Yes. This is not a drill. Um, stealing the show was the coolest miniature ever made. This is unbiased reporting uh, for D&D. <laughs> In all of the editions that ever seen, Flapjack the Pirate Flump is apparently in the adventure, and there is a miniature for him, and he's missing an eye and has a patch, and that is really amazing. Everybody agrees. Uh, we polled people extensively. 100% of people think this is unbelievably cool. Yes. The, the survey that Teos took himself uh, <laughs> led to the 100% uh, re, uh, approval. Yeah, approval of Flapjack kids sign it. the Pirate Flump. Okay, that's three. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so one you're, you're going to get lots of spell. <laughs> you're going to get lots of Spelljammer minis. Uh, there is the usual sealed mini set, uh, which includes Flapjack, the Pirate Flump. Uh, there are two gargantuan minis for those of you who want to spend ever increasing amounts of dollars 
uh, on these things. One is the Astral Dreadnought for two hundred and fifty dollars, mm. uh, but it does look really cool. And then there is the Adult Solar Dragon with Prince Zeleth, uh, who can kind of come on or off of it, so you can have just the dragon or have him mounted on it. That's one hundred and ten. I have no idea why there's that disparity in price between them, but there you have it. Um, both gargantuan size. Then there are six sets of ship scales, which this was fun because it sort of confirmed this part of it, that the old box sets used to have fold-up paper minis and little stands. Mm -hmm. And you could have Spelljammer scale battles where you'd go on these little grid maps and fight each other. And it was super fun. We had the best time with it. Um, so th that, that apparently will be a part of play because there are these six sets of ship scales, each containing between four to seven ships, objects, or monsters. So, for example, the Solar Dragon, you can get that gargantuan one for your big battle, but when you're doing a space battle, there's a little small mini of the uh, Solar Dragon. And those are at one to 600 ship scale. They come out in October. And there are all kinds of things. Nautiloids, Naogi Knight Spiders. I'm super geeking out on this giant gelatinous cube that flies through space. That's great. Uh, Lunar Dragon, Murder Comets, Astral Dreadnought, all in this small scale size. Those will be open visible packs, you know, that you know what you're getting. Right. Uh, and then if you are just, you know, if you don't know what to do with your money and apparently don't know there's a stock market out there for you to invest in, uh, you can put $790 into the one of everything box, which each time these sets have less in them. Uh, so this is time. It's just the one of every mini that are in the blind box sets, the two gargantuan, six promo minis, and one exclusive young lunar dragon. So it's even fewer minis than before, making it a worse deal than it was back with Witchlight. So there it is. Cheap at twice the price, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh -huh. So with, with Teos Mini's corner out of the way, we can get on to Dragonlance, which they announced right at the very end of uh, D and D direct. So, uh, we, uh, we saw some Dragonlance content in the, uh, UA articles and they have announced that, uh, yeah, there's going to be products released on, uh, in November of 2022. So not that far away, not only will there be a 5e setting release, but there will also be a Dragonlance themed board game called warriors of Kryn. Uh, can I just say, yeah, please. so there were a couple of things that made this impressive. One was they had a, um, a trailer of Warriors in the Battlefield, which was done by an actress from The Expanse, and I don't know how to say her name. Oh, yeah. Shore. Shore uh, Agdashlu. Yeah, and she, uh, so she's well-known to a lot of folks. I haven't seen The Expanse, so it didn't mean much to me. But, um, but that was really cool and apparently very cool for her fans. Um, and then they disclosed this piece, no prior knowledge of Dragonlance is needed. And through something else, I happened to look this up. Wikipedia says there are over 190 Dragonlance novels. And I thought that had to be wrong, so I clicked on a link and started looking, and I think it's actually true. And that's amazing. Mm -hmm. I think Star Wars has something like 400, but that's Star Wars, right? right like right. 190 Dragonlance novels. So when they say, like, no knowledge is needed, now I see why. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. I mean, and you definitely want to say that to the audience that is currently yeah. fans of D&D &D because as we've learned that they, you know, the age of the average D&D &D player is dropping precipitously. Yeah. And thankfully, 
yeah. but all of that knowledge that you know fans of Dragonlance have uh, can be burdensome, as we've talked about with fandoms and canon. So I expected that they would say something like that. Um, both of the products that they mentioned are going to take place around the same time as the original Dragonlance novels. Uh, he also, uh, Ray Winninger, who gave this announcement, also added that neither Laura or Tracy Hickman, the creators of the setting, uh, or their collaborator, Margaret Weiss, were directly involved in the game or the role-playing game. And yeah, and that ties that, into, you know, uh, I forget how many episodes ago, but you and I covered a very interesting interview uh, with Margaret Weiss where she was asked about collaboration between her and Wizards. Mm-hmm. And she had a name, I forget what it was, but it's sort of like, you know, there's there's our playing space and Wizards is working in their own space doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. And we're doing it separately. And 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 that kind of confirmed, oh, D&D is doing something. Right. right. And and we've agreed that it'll be separate. And, and of course, there had been a lawsuit between them. So it's not super surprising that there would be some kind of separation there. But but that is that is a very interesting thing, just as with Jeff Grubb not being involved with Spelljammer, you know, new teams taking on these properties. Yep. So the two products, there was a little bit uh, told about each. Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen will be a 5e campaign book. Uh, Ray Whittinger did not give too many details. Uh, he did say that there. he confirmed that clerics will be an aspect of the setting, which if you know the story, clerics were, there was no divine magic originally. Uh, mm-hmm. That became something that was added later. Uh, Ray was very excited about all this as he wrote pieces of the DL-15 Dragonlance uh, adventure for AD&D. Several characters from the novels will appear in the upcoming adventure. Existing locations will be explored, uh, but the adventure is set in an area of Ancelon that hasn't been really explored yet. And there's no connection on the story level between the classic uh, Weiss-Hickman novels and this 5e campaign book. And I think what that was in reference to is sort of, you know, are we going to be like adventuring with Raceland? And, you know, like when we did our review of DL1, where it's like, you know, you're going to have Gold Moon and, you know, on your party. So it sounds like that's not happening, right? Like yeah. their adventure will happen separate from yours and you're going to be in a different area. Yeah. So you're experiencing the War of the Lance, but different, you know, on your own story, which is probably really smart, right? Create your own story for a new generation. Yep. And one of the themes of this campaign as we've had horror and we've had fae and we've had many different sort of looks at different types of settings war will be a big theme in this Dragonlance uh, 5e campaign book not surprisingly and that brings us to the board game which is called Dragonlance Warriors of Kryn which is a battle board game it, it can be played as a standalone experience or it can be used to play out mass combats in a D campaign so there you go uh how to bring it together and actually run it the it will include plastic miniatures it has designers like stephen baker who worked on hero quest and battle masters and rob deval who worked on risk legacy and rest with restoration games uh ray winninger said we zero in on this notion that Dragonlance is a war story. Classic Dragonlance is set against the backdrop of this massive conflict. 
and these sorts of massive military battles are an important part of Dragonlance. Yeah, really very interesting. Um, the The board game was done, uh, you know, Rob had worked on like Risk, um, or, or he worked on Risk Legacy, but then he took that concept and worked on the, um, uh, what's the name of the board game? Um, yeah, the, I can look over on my shelf again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hang on. Yeah. So, he, you know, he's worked with, with Hasbro um, on, uh, yeah, what is the name of that game? I'm Betrayal. Sure to... Betrayal. Yeah, Betrayal at the House on the Hill. So it, that legacy version, which is quite fun. Um, so clearly somebody that, that they had worked with uh, and HeroQuest, of course, Stephen Baker had worked on that, um, on the relaunch. So, you know, Avalon Hill, in theory, could have, as part of Hasbro, built this. But what they said during the PR session is they were busy enough that it made sense to actually uh, bring someone in and have this develop externally. Um, so, th so there was a good reason. It's not like they weren't, uh, you know, they, they knew they, was, they could have done this in-house, in but it made more sense to do it externally. And obviously a really good team doing it. So that, what, I, what I am curious about is a lot of times we've seen board games that I get very excited about because the idea is I can drop it in my game. And then when I play the game, I realize, well, I like this game, but I can't really drop it in my game. Right? Like right. Three Dragon Ante is an awesome game. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to use it as an interlude where we play cards because it's like more than an hour that I'm going to spend during a card game. And I want like a 15 minute scene. Right. Same thing with the Tavern Brawlers. You know, that's a fun little game. Good mm -hmm. times. But I'm not going to use it to represent a brawl in an actual scene because it takes too long. Yeah. So, you know, will I be able to use this to have a really fun battle scene in my campaign? And I'll, we'll, we'll find out. The jury is out until the game is released. Um, and then the Adventures League did say that it will support Dragonlance, but details will be coming at a later time. Uh, do we want to talk about original authors developers is that a question worth our time yeah maybe not i mean i think i'm just maybe just to say well maybe we can just do it quickly in, in my opinion this has come up a lot on the internet which is hey is it okay that like they didn't involve jeff grubb mm -hmm. you know, is it okay that the hickmans weren't involved and so on to which i say yeah yeah, it's fine. I mean, I think all of us, when we, whenever we've done work for Wizards, is with, the, with that knowledge that what you write might not be used in edition later. Mm -hmm. Even within the same edition, they might abandon it. And that's part of the job. And, and you're, you know, as a professional, you just, you know that you're doing the work for hire and you know that it can move on without you. And, you know, I wrote The Ecology of the Veg Pygmies. And the next time they work with Veg Pygmies, it might not use any of that. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's the way it sort of is. Um, and they have great designers, so it, there can be so many reasons why it just doesn't make sense to. And let's bring someone who currently works, you know, on video games, mm -hmm. which is what Jeff Grubb does, to come in and, and work on this. You know, it just doesn't always make sense. Yeah, I can't add too much to that. So uh, let's let's hold off on talking about the the Dragonlance Unearthed Arcana revisited. Uh, yeah. Because that's going to be a whole separate episode in and of itself, I think. <laughs> cool. Uh, but yeah, we, I mean, just, yeah. it's worth mentioning that it's there, and the yep. poll is out there. So, so take a look and, and see what you think, because yep. uh, it, they've done some interesting changes that I'm excited to talk about next time. Yeah, we'll talk about next time. Because they released the name of the D&D &D movie. 
It is called Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Uh, we, we sort of speculated on how much we would see, and we didn't see a heck of a lot. Um, no. They did have the directors, uh, Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, speak in front of a backdrop that showed uh, the city of Neverwinter as viewed from the sea, confirming that that location is, is a part of the movie. Uh, I like that too. And they just have an interview, but don't say anything about the fact that there's this awesome backdrop behind them. Right. (laughs) Right. You know, they they talked about where they were. It was very generic. Everything they said was very generic. Um, It releases in March of 2023. So we're less than a year away now. And it will star, of course, Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez, Justice Smith, Regé Jean Page, Hugh Grant, and Sophia Lillis with Grant playing the villain of the film. Someone on EN World uh, said that they were present when the very first, first footage, 30 seconds long, long, was shared at CinemaCon. And what did, what did this person have to say? Yeah, so this is kind of fun because they it was interspersed with a whole bunch of other upcoming movies. So, so you had to kind of watch for which is which movie kind of thing, and it's all, all cut in there. Uh, and the, the EN World article gives a full you know, capture of everything, but... Uh, one thing that was neat, this quote that says, I will say that the overall look was absolutely amazing for being this far out, easily on par with what you would expect from a Marvel theatrical release. Costumes all looked good. Sets all looked good. Mm-hmm. When I read that, I was just like, oh, I'm excited. Yeah, I yeah. want to see this now. Um, they had characters riding on horseback, including fleeing a blue dragon. Um, and then... Um, Combat scenes such as, quote, a big action sequence in an outdoor arena-like setting with pillars growing out of the ground that some heroes jump across while others fire off bows, magic, etc. A spell that looked like a wizard might be casting shield to protect it against attack. It might have been Roger Jean who was um, casting it. He wasn't certain. And definitely had a fun, action-packed vibe to it. It was not grimdark. It was, you know, neat sort of heroic fantasy. So we didn't get a trailer. We didn't get any major plot, uh, you know, character names, anything like that. But it's still early. We still have a year to go. So we will see what uh, what's coming. They did release something interesting about new accessories. Uh, in July, they will b- be releasing two cases for use by DMs. One is called the campaign case Creatures, which have these round disks that you can peel uh, stickers off place on the disc and then when you're done peel the sticker back off and replace it on its sheet so they are making uh, very useful for me specifically products to run things at the tabletop level mm-hmm. the second yeah. is oh go ahead no, it's just, it's, that's a neat system it's, it's very clever and it, it, both of these sort of looked like they you know evoke um, previous products that were a big deal, especially around the 4E era. So like these round discs that Alea would make and some other companies that you would use to kind of mark your your characters having conditions. But the idea of putting then plastic clings on is very clever. Yep. And then there's a creature case terrain product that has 30 uh, dungeon tiles that are double sided one side outdoors, one side dungeon. And there are these interlocking pieces. Now there have been other companies that have done this and I've seen them used to great effect, great for storage. And you can also put 
features like trees or campfires or chests or doors uh, onto these tiles using the same cling uh, system that they use for the monsters on the discs. Very cool. Very clever. And they talked about the third intro uh, D&D intro box set called Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. They clarified that the price would not be what has been reported elsewhere, and it's going to be $20 or probably $19.99. Designed for a new DM with lots of dragons. It's going to be, as we suspected, Target exclusive starting on August 1st, then a wider release going in October. And this is what they did with the Essentials Kit as well. Um, The cover will depict Sheila and Hank from the D&D cartoon, but reimagined uh, to to modern sensibilities fighting a blue dragon. But it's not, they confirmed, based on the cartoon at all. They just did a reimagining of those characters. And and there may be more art inside that's inspired. That wasn't super clear from the wording, but but for sure it's not like it's a, you know, cartoon adventure or anything like that. they, they said that they're doing this third box set because they want to add more tools, including digital on-ramps for beginning players and DMs. So they, they sort of did that with the Essentials Kit, uh, adding three more adventures and getting half price on the, the player's handbook if you use the code. Um, it wasn't well advertised, mm-hmm. so hopefully that they will do a better job to get people to buy the box set who are brand new and then realize, oh, there's online material as well, and then bring them to D&D Beyond, which they now own, assuming that that's what they do. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Um, well, they, they, you know, they, they say they've really written this in mind with new DMs uh, or players who want to become DMs or parents who want to DM for kids and get kids uh, introduced to the game. Um that all sounds like great goals, and, and why not? I mean, it, the truth is that with places like Target, you want to keep the inventories changing, and, and so uh, that makes a lot of sense to to have a product, just even if it was just for them. But I think even on you know larger beyond that, it will be successful and interesting enough for everybody. In terms of digital offerings, we already talked about the Monstrous Compendium and Spelljammer Academy. Uh, there's going to be digital tools for the intro set. There's also going to be a player hub and a D&D curriculum digital offering. You want to tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, they're rethinking and relaunching their player DM hub, which made me think, really, you had one? Hmm." Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but they're going to provide you all the tools you need to get started, uh, including the starter set having a QR code in it. It'll take you to video tutorials, role-playing how-tos, an interactive demo experience, which is supposed to teach you D&D in under 15 minutes. Um, it drills deep into how to run an encounter, how to handle branching narrative and collaborative story, working to increase comfort with collaboration and improv. Makes sense. I mean, you know, people go out to YouTube to learn these things. So why not have the first set be something that you control and you're providing here? Um, they'll have a lot of other tools and videos to help new DMs, tutorials for how to read a stat block, guide DMs through what an encounter looks like using the new uh, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle Adventure. So you can watch and follow along with the adventure before running it for players. That makes a lot of sense, right? I know a lot of people like things like, say, Arcane Library. Uh, she reviews all of the adventures that she writes. 
and talks through, you know, the approach and that's very valuable to people. So yeah, yeah makes sense. Um, D and D curriculum was something that came up during the PR discussion and Shelly Mazanoble was there answering those questions where this, the goal is create the next generation of storytellers rolling out this fall. And that is a relaunch of this D and D after school club kit. There are two different kits for grades four to six and grades seven to 12. Each one has materials customized to that grade range, everything needed to get the club going and sustained posters to advertise it, etc. The whole point being kids can get the education and emotional benefits of cooperative play and storytelling. Uh, initially, it's only in the US this program, but they hope to, um, you know, expand it over time. But that's smart to more formally do this. I mean, we've heard about a lot of D&D clubs yeah. in schools all over the place. So smart move. Yeah, very smart. Um, they did not mention virtual tabletops at all. Uh, and they didn't mention D&D Beyond uh, specifically, but there was a Hasbro quarter one earnings call, right? Yeah. And what did what did they say about, what did Hasbro say about D&D Beyond there? So Hasbro said that D&D Beyond was the primary hub for its expansion of the D&D play system into other IPs. Mm. Um, which created some people going like, oh, what's going to happen? To which some people say, well, we've, we've already kind of seen that, right? D&D has been used for other IPs. It's not right. shocking. Yeah. Um, also plans to create physical products exclusive to the platform of D&D Beyond. Uh, the quote was, we see a lot of e-commerce and direct opportunities working in partnership with our Hasbro Pulse team to have digital physical, physical digital tie-ins mm -hmm. that are unique to the platform. There's a lot of speak there that you could you know, analyze, um, but you know I, I could see some types of products there, especially with you see now on Hasbro Pulse they'll sell all kinds of collectibles and things like that, um, some of which are quite neat and expansions to games. So there's a lot of potential for how they could do it. Um, they said that D and D Beyond had been growing at a three-year compound annual growth rate of over fifty percent. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Yeah. Um, Hasbro expects it to have an operating profit margin over 65%, showing the rest of Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming, which is at 40%, how to make money. <laughs> so welcome. You've been doing well. Teach everybody else how to do what you did. And oh, by the way, do it better. Yep. Um, we've heard that before. And they said uh, also in quarter one that D&D and Magic Tabletop revenue was up 10%. Overall, Hasbro quarter one sales were up 4% with net earnings down 47%. So yeah, one of the topics there was raw materials. So yeah. um, we've seen separately um, that some of the books are being printed in China now versus the US Hasbro printers, who knows if that's related, but but they're clearly going to tweak things to try to deal with their, the price increases that they've had from shipping and paper costs, whether that translates to jacking up prices, we'll see magic, the gathering prices have gone up. Yeah. It's not clear whether books will, but they had said previously they probably would. So we'll see yeah. how that goes. Speaking of translating, they mm. announced that there will be French, Italian, German, and Spanish trans translations aimed at Europe for the new starter set on October 4th. Uh, digital tools for the starter set will also be provided in those languages. And the following books will be translated into those languages as well. Tasha's. Mordenkainen's and Curse of Strahd. They will be releasing in Europe on July 12th with Tasha's, then Mordenkainen's in September and 
uh, Curse of Strahd in October. So they're definitely yeah. moving forward. It's very Europe focused, which you know left a lot of folks who speak Spanish saying, "Cool, what about all of Latin America? What's the plan there?" But we'll find out. We will. Uh, I recently went through the experience of trying to get my local gaming store of getting products in Spanish. That failed uh, after months. They finally said, "Yeah, yeah, we can't do it." Mm-hmm. So then I went on to Amazon, which I try to never do, and in two days it was at my doorstep. Yeah, <laughs> I it, sighed and yeah. cried and. Right. local gaming store tiers yeah but that's yeah that's the way it goes unfortunately sometimes mm-hmm. uh let's talk about being the onslaught next time sure okay video games uh there were some announcements we got, there was a lot of time spent on Baldur's gate 3 with absolutely or very very little news uh so so they tried to they tried to entertain us uh which i won't say worked well for me uh, no. But they are ex- they are continuing to work on the game, and they've set a 2023 release for the full game. It's been in early access, beta, whatever you want to call it, uh, for quite a while now. Yeah. So, they also said it's expanding, so you know I guess that's one way of validating the right. further release date is that you're going to get more. Right. I, I mean, it, I, isn't it always expanding when you go from early release to main release? I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was a minor announcement and trailer for the never winter MMO. The 23rd module released for MMO will be called dragon slayer coming out in June, letting players enter epic layers and hunt down chromatic dragons from the D and D universe. Uh, there will be a new dragon hunting system, a revamp, of Neverwinter's existing dragons and an update and remake of the existing Temple of Tiamat Trial. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, there was more news about Radiant Citadel. And since you talked to Ajit George last episode, uh, we probably know a lot more about that than we did previously. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool to see. Um, they shared the details and art for several of the adventures that are in the book. Um, Field of the Hollow Mind, fourth level, taking place during the holiday night of the remembered. Wages of Vice for fifth level with bright artwork suggested of the Caribbean. Uh, Orchids of the Invisible Mountain, 14th level, crosses the Feywild and travels into the Far Realm. Um, All of it comes out June 21st. But it was really neat to see the art. And and Wizards also released a video, which you can find on their YouTube channel. Really cool, where they actually seem to have brought in if not all, most of the writers to the D&D offices and interviewed them there about what it was like to write about, um, to write these pieces, to write them from the perspective of their culture. And so it was neat, like, you know, Mario Ortegon, who was on the show, right. uh, you know, last year, uh, talking about his experience writing. It was really cool to see. It made me feel really good to see that, that kind of attention uh, given by wizards to these designers was excellent. Yeah, I mean it's it's great that they're giving attention to any designers at all, but yes. but but having them you know take extra time and extra care to to work with underrepresented uh, individuals in the industry is is fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. What we were waiting most for some of us on the business side of things was what are their plans for twenty twenty four? You know, it's going to be a very uh, monumental anniversary in D&D history and they have talked about a new or expanded or updated edition of the game 
So we were hoping that maybe they would say something, but there wasn't much major news. Uh, someone asked if the new starter set would be compatible with the 2024 revision. And what the team said was the starter set and all the products we're coming out with should play nicely with those 2024 revisions, which makes you hope that that means they are, the two editions are going to be compatible enough that you can play one with the other. Uh, what was on that I mean, fact sheet that play that, nice. I mean, that, that's, that's an interesting term. Right. Um, I just very, so let's see, that's August. So what it means is in August, it'll be really interesting to see if any of the suspicions folks have, um, play out, you know, things like, will they get rid of short rests or right. change them vastly? Right. There's been some things that make you think maybe there are going to be some changes. And so I wonder whether any of that will, will be something we can confirm in August. Um, there was a PR fact sheet that had information, 50 million D and D fans worldwide is what the company is saying. 2021 was again, the best year ever for nine years now of consecutive growth. That's amazing in kind of any industry. Yeah. Uh, especially at the levels of profit that have been happening. So yep. that's really something. Uh, more players, this is a quote, more new players are finding a love for the game now more than ever before. Introductory D&D products continued to reach new audiences with more total sales in 2021 than when they were first released in 2014. This had been something that I'd wondered about a few episodes ago. You know, has maybe like player handbook sales slow down, mm -hmm. you know, because, because they had shown no decline for a long time. And so here they are again saying introductory D and D products. So maybe it's the starter set, maybe it's the player's handbook. They're not saying exactly, but at least some of those are selling better now mm -hmm. than before. That is incredible. Like that's never happened in the history of our hobby and shows D and D's potential to, to, you know, seven years later be selling better. Yeah. is just not something that ever happened with these kinds of products. Yep. And to show what the digital realm means to the game, they also said that more than 80% of fans played D&D virtually in 2021 and aided by online platforms like D&D Beyond, World 20, Fantasy Grounds, etc. So while the game is growing, it's also growing in the digital space uh, and becoming a way to play for if not uh, the only way, at least a way for people to play. And I played digitally this weekend as well. So, you know, hmm. even though it's, I'm not a huge fan of online play, it's something that it's an avenue through which lots of people are interacting with the game. And they said Fizban's Treasury of Dragons was the best-selling new title of 2021, the biggest D&D &D book launch since Tasha's Calling of Everything debuting at number six on the USA Today book list, spending three weeks on that list. Wild Beyond the Witchlight was the fastest selling D&D &D adventure ever. In comparison, Curse of Strahd took years to sell as many copies as Witchlight sold in when it was, when it was released in September, 2021. Right. So that shows you the growth, right? Where Curse of Strahd is, what we'd say is, has more appeal, right? To, especially right. to longstanding fans mm -hmm. than Wild Beyond the Witchlight. Wild Beyond the Witchlight is outselling it. Right. Because that's where the audience is today, right? And, and, and that appeal, I mean, it's also a fantastic adventure, right. if not the best adventure they've written. But, um, but that, that's, all of this is just mind-boggling. And in fact, I, I forget the exact positioning, but um, one of the listeners of the show pointed out that 
the preview sales for Spelljammer on Amazon uh, put it at, I think, either number three or number six of all books on Amazon. Right. And, you know, and that's before it's even out. And so that's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. So, Spelljammer. I mean, it's right. something that is not for everybody. It's definitely yet, a niche uh, a niche yeah. product in the D&D realm. So, yeah. Kudos to the team continuing to to create interesting products and to create new programs uh, like the curriculum program to spread the game. You know, buying D and D Beyond while it was probably a no brainer in the long run, uh, also made fans pretty happy uh, knowing that it was a a very smooth transition uh, and they wouldn't have to worry about losing material that they bought. So you know, all, all in all, the the D and D team continues to to do a bang up job. Yeah, incredible. Well, that was an episode and and uh, a quarter. So yeah. thank you all for listening to us cover this news. Uh, next week we will probably have even more news, but we'll also delve into some topic of your choice. And as always, if you have a question or a comment, please reach out. You can reach out in many ways, some of which we're about to talk about. So thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our patrons who uh, give us a few bucks each month to help us with with our costs. And Teos, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at alphastream.org or on Twitter at alphastream. My latest blog post is really just a snippet teaser kind of thing where I talked about how I am possibly going to create either a adventure where you're very old or you're a flump um so what right about now, a very old folks are voting they're voting on patreon as to which way they want to go on that so if you want to be part of that discussion want to support the work i do uh you can click on the support me link on alphastream.org sean where do we find and support you uh me being a very old flump you can find mm -hmm. me on twitter mo mostly at sean merwin you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. You can go to misdirectedmark.com and comment directly on any of these episodes. We're also on YouTube, so you can hear us on YouTube and you can leave comments there. And you can follow the podcast's Twitter feed at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that we've been just saturated with all sorts of D&D &D news. What are we going to do now? We're going to ride some flumps into space!